0: This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome back to
1: Vancouver Consumer. I'm Sterling Fox in for the vacationing Martin Strong. And in just a few moments, we'll meet Heritage Gardens Director Trevor Crean. But first, here are some more of this week's top consumer stories. If you live in an area prone to wildfires... As we certainly do here, general guidance suggests avoiding outdoor activity and keeping windows in your home closed. But research from the University of California, Berkeley, has found that some of the most dangerous particulate matter produced by wildfire smoke can penetrate closed doors and windows, leading to unhealthy indoor air quality. It's important to keep your indoor air as free of smoke particles as possible, and an air purifier can help. According to Consumer Reports, not all air purifiers do a good job of removing smoke particulates. The most effective against smoke have a HEPA filter and a large fan that helps force air through a fine mesh to trap particles. The best air purifiers fitted with HEPA filters can reduce particle concentrations by as much as 85%. If you want to get rid of the smell of smoke, in addition to particles, you'll want an air purifier that also has a large carbon filter to absorb odors. HEPA Air purifiers can range from 50 bucks to more than 1000 Consumer Reports experts advise against buying one that's marketed for rooms smaller than 150 square feet. These models tended to perform poorly in their tests. Plus, you'll always get better results with a unit that's rated well for a larger space than you intend to use it in. Purifiers for rooms larger than 350 square feet are much better at removing smoke. Most of Consumer Reports' recommended air purifiers fall into that category. If you look at any of the top-rated air purifiers tested in our labs, they're physically big because of the big HEPA filter inside of them, says the director of product testing over at Consumer Reports. That's the one thing they all have in common. A report from British Columbia's fire commissioner says there were 86 deaths due to fires in our province last year, a toll that has tripled in just three years. The report says there were more than 9000 fires last year and that a working fire alarm was present in only 45 percent of blazes that occurred in homes. BC Fire Commissioner Brian Godlinton pointed to a number of factors contributing to the increase in fire injuries and deaths, including an aging population, homelessness encampments, working from home due to COVID 19, and increasing population density in rural areas. The BC government has announced it will provide $1.6 million for a new campaign to educate people about proper smoke alarm use and reducing the risk of fires. The government and Statistics Canada have also created a dashboard to provide statistical and geographical information on fires in B.C., and that's expected to be rolled out across the province in the coming weeks. Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth says in a statement, fire deaths represent an alarming trend, and a working smoke alarm is a critical tool for saving lives. Those are a couple more of the week's top consumer stories. We'll have a look at some more later on, but right now we'll take a quick break. And when we return, you'll meet Heritage Gardens Director Trevor Green right here on Vancouver Consumer on CKNW.
0: This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.
1: Welcome back to Vancouver Consumer. I'm Sterling Fox sitting in for the vacationing Martin Strong, joined by Trevor Crean the director of Heritage Gardens a sustainable cemetery Mr. Crean Trevor good afternoon and welcome sir Thank you very much I am uh, it, it's a pleasure to be here well, Trevor, this is a this is a, a fact of life that most of us would prefer to not deal with. The two realities in life, is, as someone long ago identified, are death and taxes. Taxes never get easier, and death is inevitable. It's, a, it's an awkward subject to talk about, but terribly necessary. And you know, Trevor, we just had a conversation with John Carlson about Metro Vancouver real estate. And I've just found, uh, doing a little homework, getting ready for my conversation with you... That, in fact, real estate is a component when one talks about preparing for one's end of life, isn't it?
2: A hundred percent. It's all about location, location, location.
1: So talk to us about why. For example, if I choose a burial plot in a funeral, uh, in a cemetery, rather, somewhere in Metro Vancouver, that I've perhaps identified as I'd like to go there. Uh, what's the protocol, Trevor? Does one go and buy that plot? Or does one go to someone like you and have it done through you? What's the usual procedure in these, in these uh, times and arrangements?
2: We are a cemetery, so we work with the clients directly, the general public or or faith communities uh, overall. But the process is um, there's going to be one of two ways that you find yourself shopping for a grave. One is that somebody has passed away and you're responsible for um, laying them to rest, and that creates a bit of urgency in your mm-hmm. shop. But uh, the I think the majority of people... Um, when it comes to cemetery, they go and do their own research. They'll visit a few properties and find out who's offering what and what is available. And then, yes, once the family or the client is uh, comfortable, satisfied, they'll, um, you can get it either in a transaction or a payment plan. You just, you just purchase it directly through the cemetery.
1: So it becomes, it becomes in essence, a real estate transaction at that point, doesn't it? It is. Yeah, it's very
2: similar. You're not taking title of land, but the way that the legislation is set up is you're buying the right of interment to use the burial site, and uh, that's yours in perpetuity.
1: Trevor, I get the the feeling, though, that you and I are talking already about something that's almost passé. Give us an idea on this weekend in 2023 what the reality is in terms of burials versus cremation in your business
2: uh cremation is very high in our line of work um it's about nine out of ten people in metro vancouver will choose cremation um, for themselves and i personally feel that that's a result of uh traditional burial sites being highly expensive we're the first new cemetery to open in over 50 years we're in south surrey Uh, The last one was in the 60s when Gardens of Gethsemane opened for the Catholic community. And so you can imagine that we've done a a brilliant job of getting the world's attention through the Expo and through having the Olympics and through all of these major international uh, occasions. Well, it's like we were kind of caught flat-footed when the whole world wanted to move here, and Mm -hmm. um, a lot of our infrastructure, including funeral and cemetery space, has kind of been overlooked.
1: So now you mentioned you're in South Surrey in the Hazelmere area uh, on 16th Avenue, uh, and you also refer to yourself at HeritageGardensCemetery.com as a sustainable cemetery. Trevor, what does that mean?
2: What we mean by that is that, um, it, it, in the simplest form, we are trying to encourage families to go as eco-friendly as possible. Uh, we are the first green burial certified cemetery um, here in Metro Vancouver, and then. Beyond that, uh, the other pillars to us of sustainability is that it has to be affordable. I mean, you can can save the planet, but if nobody can afford it, then you're not helping many people. And the other aspect is that we've tried to incorporate memorialization that actually... Um, it symbolizes something. It, it means something. What a, and an example of that would be when you take a walk of our grounds, you might see a bronze butterfly on a plaque or you'll see a bronze salmon on a plaque. And the salmon symbolizes that we've made a contribution in that person's memory to the fish hatchery that's a kilometer downstream. That yeah. will ra- pay to raise about 300 salmon to be released into the ecosystem. And the bronze butterflies, are um, we've made a contribution in that person's memory to the local hospice. Here, which just helps with their overhead and keeping their, their organizations going. So people have no control when somebody they love leaves their life. And when they come and work with us, we try to help them with memorialization or ceremony that is really going to honor the life lived, but also give back to the, either the community or to, to just remember that person in a way that shares their
1: values. Trevor, you're a fourth-generation funeral director, and I know you're not at a Wilson Estates lawyer, but answer me this question. How many people leave this earth without any sort of funeral arrangement at all?
2: In terms of having nothing planned ahead, you mean?
1: Yes, exactly.
2: Yeah, I, uh, I'm sorry to say that that's the majority. I think really? it, is, it is so comfortable to not think about death and end-of-life life Things And it's unfortunately, it becomes I, I think it just becomes a self-propelling uh, prophecy, because if you ignore it and you don't look into it and you don't do your research, then, and you just think, oh, I, it's, it's cheap to ignore it, it's going to be expensive, uncomfortable, and a whole overwhelming process, well, just you wait until somebody that you really care about passes away, and you just go down to the local funeral home that you've driven by 150,000 times in your neighborhood, right. and then get railroaded because it might be a corporate sales machine and you get sat through a two and a half hour presentation and then you end up $50,000 lighter and say, wow, that was uncomfortable and overwhelming and expensive, just like I thought it would be. That's, uh, it can be done a lot better than that.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. It is an uncomfortable subject, and and I'm sure that even people listening to us right now have have sort of squirmy and sort of awkwardly enjoying the conversation because it's something that, frankly, for many humans is difficult. Confronting your own mortality, Trevor. You're a fourth-generation funeral director. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It's awkward on a good day, and a lot of people just can't wrap their heads around any kind of conversation about it that plus the fact that there's a public perception that the funeral industry is become really corporate and really slick over the years is is somewhat intimidating don't you think
2: it's too bad um yeah well a lot of the family-owned businesses like they don't really they haven't made it past two three or fourth generation and so um, those funeral homes go up for sale and is, sometimes it's the bigger companies that have the budget and so they, they acquire 8 or 10 funeral homes in a city and they keep the original family's name on the door so you don't right. know the difference between the Jones family or corporate America running the Jones family funeral home.
1: So let's talk about a green burial. You mentioned that a few moments ago and it's it's something that frankly I'm not familiar with at all. What do you mean when you discuss green burials? The but the, the uh put it this i guess the
2: the most economic way for a cemetery to open up a new burial garden these days is to excavate an an acre of land at a time, maybe two or three or four acres, and they pre install concrete burial vaults and so there would be call it four thousand concrete chambers installed in the ground and they cover it up with about two or three feet of soil. And then those are the graves, so that when people are purchasing a grave in many of the metro cemeteries, it's a surveyed cement box you're buying. And so they, when at the time of the burial, they just open up two feet of earth, pull off the lid, drop you into the box, place the earth back, and there's your parking spot for the rest of time. the time. Most people, when they imagine burial, it is the idea of opening up the earth, laying the mm-hmm. body to rest in the earth, and so that Mother Nature takes you back. And, you know, over time, the casket, the, the body, everything disintegrates. And then, you know, that's, that's the cycle of life. So at our cemetery, we, the family can choose to use vaults. We've done over 350 burials now, and we've had two or three families opt to have a, a cement vault. But otherwise, all of the other burials have been directly into the earth. Um, The argument for using the vaults is that, well, the the casket will eventually break down, so then the earth settles and the headstone leans over and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But Mm -hmm. we're a small cemetery, and we know that going into this. So we have a care and maintenance fund, and we have a hardworking team, and it's, it's actually not that catastrophic when the earth settles six inches. We just go back and top it up with some more soil, plant some more seed, straighten out the headstone, give it a good polish, and... Hey, we're we're working with the environment, not against it.
1: So, let's let's talk about now that that uh, description of the vault, etc., refers to a casket burial. A lot of people, as you've already said, the majority, the vast majority of people opt for cremation these days. Do those people who get cremated, Trevor, tend to have the urn or their remains uh, containing their remains buried or do people keep the urns uh, in their homes or in special places?
2: It's, honestly, that's a really hard one to track because um, it's, I I believe that, I mean, so following the cremation, oftentimes, say if people, somebody passes away in the wintertime, it's quite common the family will wait till spring or summer and then have a get-together, celebration of life, a picnic, or any kind of memorial event, and then oftentimes the family member who brought the urn to that celebration will take it home and like three months can turn into three years can turn into ten years really fast so I don't know that there's any way to to kind of inventory how many people have cremated remains at home but we the the oldest uh, I guess you'd call it the oldest death the uh, a fellow the oldest person in our cemetery was well, he passed away in 1973 and we have been working with his uh, wife on a monument for her and, uh, and her late husband, and she said, you know, I've had this urn with me for 50 years this year, and I didn't know why, and it I, and it was only once I got to Heritage Gardens that I realized this is what I've been waiting for. And that stuff means a lot to us.
1: So uh, it, perhaps in some cases it's simply because they don't know what to do with the urn because there's nowhere that satisfies them to put it.
2: That's I, I think that that's uh, a big part of the case.
1: So then, talk to us about the, uh, the offerings that you have for those urns, Trevor, please. Um,
2: sure. Um, we have everything from the traditional in-ground burial site. So that's where the urn would be laid to rest under the lawn, and you'd have like a kind of flat granite marker for... One or two people's names on it, Um, but most popular has been our kind of uh, like our cremation gardens and our memorial trees. And so we have um, we have gardens like we have four cremation gardens where they. I couldn't tell you how many people are there, but anywhere that you see a bronze plaque, then the cremated remains have been laid to rest in that in that garden and the plaque placed above the remains. But we don't use urns. The the ashes are placed directly into the soil. And then the plaque will be on that site for 15 years. And then we just have the right to, like, we don't have a plan immediately but uh, right now. But the, the idea is that because gardens kind of evolve and they change over time, plants live and the plants pass away. So after 15 years, we would have the right to move the plaque onto, like, a memorial wall or another common feature around the garden so that it has room to kind of breathe over, over time. And then otherwise, we have dedicated memorial trees where um, they're suitable kind of for four up to eight cremation placements. And that means like, uh, you know, a family sponsors a tree. Um, The cost of the trees is kind of based on the footprint and the horticulture, like the care and maintenance that the tree will need over its lifetime. Some of our early generation memorial trees are, are like horse chestnut and American oaks and I, I, I might have shot myself in the foot with some of the humongous things that are going to grow up here but we're kind of we've dialed in dialed it in now and um our our landscape is starting to be a beautiful reflection of like people's values and their personal stories um uh, we're planting things that are from like we have two sets of roses here that were from a woman's backyard she looked after these rose plants for y- years and then her children brought them here and said you know, Mom, we had to sell the home. Can Mom's roses come here? And we're like, yes,
1: absolutely. Able to accommodate them. And nice, nice touch, too. Trevor, I need to take a quick break. Please stand by, if you will. We're in conversation with Trevor Crean, Director of Heritage Gardens, online at heritagegardenscemetery.com. Lots more still ahead here on Vancouver Consumer.
0: This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.
1: Welcome back to Vancouver Consumer. I'm Sterling Fox sitting in for the vacationing Martin Strong on this Saturday afternoon, having a conversation with Trevor Crean, the director of Heritage Gardens Cemetery in Surrey. Trevor, you're a fourth-generation funeral director... Take us through the family history and why you've decided to stick with the family business.
2: Uh, Yeah, my funeral career, or call it exposure, started uh, in grade 11 when I was sitting on the couch playing video games, and my father came in and gave me a boot in the leg and said, you're not doing anything, get down to the uh, office and wash the cars. And so I uh, took the bus down to Broadway to uh, Kearney Funeral Services, and Mm. I fell in love with our fleet. We had two limousines and a uh, like a 1980s Cadillac hearse, and I fell in love with the cars that day, and I started washing cars on weekends. And then after high school, I was uh, a little intimidated by student loans and rushing off to uh, a degree, and I didn't know what I wanted to know yet. And right. so I just kept washing cars, and then that turned into going to church, and then it turned into going to hospitals and doing transfers. And then after I'd spent a couple of years helping on funeral services and helping around the property, um, I, I, I just kind of, I realized that families would be asking me questions about the process or what happens or what do we need to know, like at the back of the church before the funeral starts. You could, you could have the family, like, where do we sit? What are we doing? And I had the answers, and that really triggered something in me where I, I felt such a satisfaction about helping people when, when people don't know what's going on, that's just an extra layer of discomfort, and when they're going through something as uncomfortable as end of life or a funeral arrangement and stuff, just a little bit of comfort, a little bit of compassion can go a long way and so that that's what's really driven me to to remain in this profession and so yeah, I got my funeral director's license at twenty three and uh, around in my early thirties so when i when I left the funeral business, I was managing two of our locations uh, we served out attorneys about Oh, twelve hundred families a year at that time, and um i I just kind of thought you know I'd had a really good couple of years like met some really good positive families I'd also had some really challenging families um this fentanyl crisis I'll just add is is brutal uh, like yeah. the devastation that it has. I, like the news really just focuses on the body count, but the devastation is the impact on the circle around each of these individuals. Mm-hmm. And so funeral homes are, are the front line of working through the, getting those families onto a healthy grieving process and to having a healthier life moving forward. But, um, so we'd, I'd had a couple of good years, and then I, I was just thinking, you know, what do we do next? And uh, because my there was eight of us, Kearney's working in the eight of us Koreans were working at the funeral home and so we're all kind of hitting management age and there wasn't a big enough funeral business for us all to be bosses so um, my side my father and my my father my siblings and I and my mom we sold our interest to the cousins who continue to operate Kearney's and we bought a little piece of land out here in South Surrey and we started Heritage Garden Cemetery and the whole uh, the whole mentality here is that there is such a range of service levels. You have like municipal cemeteries are, are great. They're, they're your city-owned cemetery. They're run by the Parks Department. They're, they're pretty. They're simple. And they're kind of a, an extension of the service to the taxpayer. And right. then you have the private cemeteries out there that are very sales-oriented. They're big business. They make a ton of money. They spend a lot on advertising. And they're well-established. And in the middle... I saw a huge opportunity that why don't we create a a cemetery only in the fact that, yes, we do receive caskets and we bury the remains of loved ones. But otherwise, why can't we make the setting as much like a West Coast-inspired park where people want to spend time here, where we we have vegetable gardens going off to the side up near the office, we have beehives, we have memorial trees, we have... Um, a lot of wildlife out here, we don't use any chemicals and pesticides and things, and we let our unused areas grow up into pollinator meadows in the spring and summer. And I was like, why don't we just create a space that people want to be so that they they can come here as often as they need to on their own grief journey, and we're just going to be nice people, and we're going to help them out any way that we can. And that's what we've really built here.
1: It's very non traditional sounding, and yet the funeral business has become non-traditional in in its own way over the past 20 years because if if for no other reason Trevor than simply the diversification of our population, correct?
2: That's probably a part of it. Yeah, and also like the East Coast is a lot more traditional. They'll have a much higher burial rate than cremation rate, but in as, in the West, I believe like that you could kind of follow this Trend right down the West Coast, down to California, where we've always kind of been more free-spirited, less attached to tradition, um, maybe less attached to a faith community out here. People are—they are always, you know—we're big on yoga, and everybody want, is spiritual to the universe and stuff. But at end of life, that doesn't always provide the best direction for how to deal with the loss of a loved one. Right. We get we, we work with a lot of people who are kind of emotionally rudderless they they don't have the the spiritual structure that going to church gives that community you know and so we just work with clients based on you know what are they going through and what can we offer that will help them meet their needs
1: well, it's interesting that you talked about the fentanyl crisis moments ago. And, well, you know, you're right. I'm in the news business and we focus a lot on the body count, if you will, and pay. Uh, we don't have time during a newscast to talk about the impact, the devastation that it's created, the ripple effect through the families. And that's where you come in. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm sure that it's been as appalling to you as anyone else in B.C.
2: Well, you take, so 2,500-some-odd people died last year in B.C., times that by easily five, and that's the number of people who are immediately affected by the loss of those individuals, and it could easily be 10 or 20 per person. Um, I'm, I, I have families that have uh, a kid in their 20s, kids in their 30s laid to rest here, and I'm, I see the, the grandparents, the parents, and the, the, the children of the deceased. Like, man, you want to talk about an emotional heart wrench, like yeah. people, man, people are in pain out there and are like, my job as a human being is to treat them with kindness and compassion and to do what I can using my skill set and the, the, the efforts of our team to just get people on a healthier track going forward.
1: Trevor, I want to talk a little bit about something you mentioned in the first half of our conversation the fact that the vast majority of us humans don't have any kind of schedule or plan for uh, the end of our days. And therefore, a lot of surprised family members or friends or associates are left with those plans sitting in their laps when they are least expected. What do you do when people in that circumstance come to you going, what do I do now?
2: Um, in most cases, like there's a few different uh, levels of what do I do now, but in, in most cases, like, the urgency is to make arrangements for the deceased. So they'll be in a care facility or in a hospital or sometimes they'll be at home and people need to make arrangements for the body. So calling a local family-owned funeral provider is going to, in almost every sense, there'll be a, a less cost to handle a cremation or to handle a, a, a direct burial arrangement. So that kind of takes care of getting getting your loved one into the care of a professional who is going to shelter them, and then that, the funeral home is the one who gets the death certificates for, for the family to settle the estate later. Right. Um, from there, I mean, like, it just really depends on, like, are, are you trying to adhere to the wishes of your loved one? Like, are you looking for the will, and did they specify burial or cremation? A lot of people don't really think about it. A lot of the times they don't leave those directions in the That's will. That's right. Um, if they the the worst I see is when they say I would like to be buried and have, you know, a funeral at our church and I want to be buried in this cemetery over here. And they haven't left funds for it because right. man, like the cemeteries today, easily a burial site is easily 25 to $65,000. Yeah. If you're in Vancouver, if you're in Burnaby, um, yeah, that's what you're looking at. So if, if, Don't leave it in your will that you want to be buried and not make any arrangements for that.
1: And, you know, it's interesting because those people who do make plans, Trevor, in many cases actually purchase insurance policies in order to provide those funds to cover the funeral expenses because they know how incredibly prohibitive they've become. And yet you offer something. You offer, for example, funeral packages uh, for a, a, a less than $5,000. How are you able to do that?
2: Well, it's, I mean, it's just a, a matter of, planning ahead like if you if you put anything we have uh payment plans that go up to five years long so if a family comes in here and they say this is what we'd like to have then i say okay call this funeral home we work with them quite regularly they'll set you up with all of the arrangements for a green barrel and they'll put it on a five-year monthly payment plan and by the way it's insured so if after six months into your plan if the worst happens knock on wood um they'll just take care of your arrangements and, and no additional cost. And then same with, uh, with the land cost here. We just find the site, the family pays a deposit, and then we spread it out over five, five years of payments. And so, you know, you set something up where you're paying maybe $300, $400 a month, and then after five years, those, those whole end-of-life arrangements are covered.
1: So let's talk a little bit more about that, because I think a lot of people shy away. There are many reasons. We've discussed a few of them, why this is an awkward conversation to even listen to on the radio. And yet it's so terribly important. Let's talk about, uh, in addition to the real raw and sometimes quite intimidating economics of post-life realities let's talk about the other reasons some of the reasons that you're in the business that people just choose to ignore not to deal with this one little bit
2: i'm uh, that is a that is a broad brush my friend like if, um the i could you specify
1: a little bit more about what people choose to ignore well, I suppose it's the fact that they don't want to make any plans, Trevor. They just, they, they I, you know, I, I know someday I'm going to die, but you know, it, I'm having too much fun. Life's too short. All the cliches you can muster in thirty seconds or less, basically oh, yeah. boiling down to, I don't want to go there.
2: It's, it comes down to ignorance is bliss, and um, it, it is, it is like it's something like we know families would rather not be talking to us in the first place or talking to a funeral home in the first place, obviously. But if you don't have a choice, then don't you want to have control of how this goes? Like, don't you want to see what the options are so that you can leave some detailed instructions for, for your for your loved ones? Because it's mm-hmm. really, by Grandpa saying, oh, just cremate me and throw me off the back of my boat. Right. What he's really doing is saying, you have no direction from me at all. And that family goes to the funeral home and says, okay, Grandpa wants to be cremated and thrown off a boat. Well, the funeral director says, "Sorry, that's illegal. It's against the bylaws." And now you're back to square one. And now you're kind of at the mercy of whatever the funeral director is going to tell you. But um, it's you can. This can be something beautiful. You can set up your arrangements that where you have a memorial tree, and you made a donation to the local fish hatchery or to the local hospice. Like there's, there is such an opportunity to make end of life empowering and and personal and individual and to do storytelling and i feel like a lot of it is kind of overshadowed by the 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 fear that it's just going to be about meeting with a bunch of vampires who want to roll you when you're vulnerable we're not
1: we're not all like that yeah right trevor excellent conversation awkward though it may have been i am delighted that you took us through it Very much appreciate the conversation this afternoon. And friends, lots more information at Trevor's website, heritagegardenscemetery.com. Trevor Crean, director. Thanks again very much.
0: Super cool. Thank you very much, Sterling.
1: We'll be right back.
0: This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.
1: Our thanks to Heritage Gardens director Trevor Crean for a very informative hour. Before we leave you, here's another of the week's top consumer stories, and we couldn't leave Apple out of the news because they've introduced their first new product at quite some time this week. Apple's headset is finally here. It's called Vision Pro. It'll retail for $3,499 early next year on Apple's website. It features exterior cameras, allowing users to interact with digital content in mixed reality. The product will have two hours of use on a battery pack the headset plugs into. When users put the headset on, they arrive at the home view, a floating set of icons with Apple's most used apps, including mail, music, messages, and so on. The system doesn't need controllers or hardware. When the users look at a particular icon, the system can track eyes to highlight the preferred icon. People looking at someone with Vision Pro on can see the user's eyes, using a technology called EyeSight to help signal when someone is busy or available. When someone is nearby, the mixed reality functionality will clear apps so then a user can see through. Apple also emphasized business applications, noting that Vision Pro made work travel much easier with collaborative functionality. All very well and good, friends, but it's the $3,499 that's a bit tough to get used to. I guess if you start saving now, you'll be ready when it arrives early next year, at least six months away. And when it does, of course, it'll be all over the news again, and availability will be most useful through the Apple website. That is our Vancouver show for this week. Martin Strong will be back with you next Saturday with many thanks to producer Leo Coelho,